Welcome to the Primary Source Podcast. My name is Tom Bober, a school librarian in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. This podcast is here to explore the uses of primary sources in K-12 libraries and classrooms. We'll dig into resources and teaching strategies, talk to educators who are utilizing primary sources, and supporters of educators who curate these incredible items and use them in their work. Today we are going to get a chance to talk to Chris Barton about one of his books, in fact his newest book, Moving Forward, which is about airmen and civil rights activist Alton Yates. And just as much as I'm enjoying every page of that book, I just loved geeking out with Chris talking through all of these primary sources that just uncovered layer after layer after layer of Alton's story. It is one of our longer episodes, but there was so much to say. I wanted to keep every moment of it in there, and I know that you'll enjoy it. We are here on the Primary Source Podcast with our first author visit of 2022, and I couldn't be more excited because while this is his first time on the podcast, it's certainly not the first time that if you followed me, you've had a chance to read about my thinking around his work and how primary sources fit in. So we've got wonderful books like Whoosh, Lonnie Johnson's Super Soaking Stream of Inventions, and The Dayglow Brothers, and Dazzle Ships, and What Do You Do With a Voice Like That? The Story of Extraordinary Congresswoman Barbara Jordan, and maybe one that you remember, one called All of a Sudden and Forever, Help and Healing After the Oklahoma City Bombing. Chris Barton, our guest today, actually spoke with me about that book for the Knowledge Quest Picture Book and Primary Source blog post, which was kind of a precursor to these author interviews on the podcast. So, Chris, I am so excited to have you on the podcast here today. Welcome to the Primary Source Podcast. Well, thank you, Tom. I'm always glad to see you, whether it's in person or over email or, or here on the podcast. Love it. And, and we are here, though, to talk about a new book today of yours and one that I'm really excited to learn more about this one is called Moving Forward from Space Age Rides to Civil Rights Sit-Ins with Airman Alton Yates. I had a chance to read this recently. It has not been out very long at the time that we're recording this, and I'm really looking forward to diving in. So let's go ahead. Can you tell us a little bit, for those that haven't had a chance to read this, about your picture book? And um, yeah, give us a little bit of a background. Sure. So moving forward is illustrated by Steffi Walthall, and it's a story about how meaningful progress can occur at the same time that things may seem to be heading in the opposite direction. It's told through the lens of Alton Yates, who grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, amid members of his community who had served in the armed forces in both world wars and in Korea, only to come home and find themselves still subject to, to Jim Crow. Despite all that, Alton couldn't wait to join the Air Force, and that resulted in this highly fulfilling four years at Holloman Air Force Base out in New Mexico, where he, he participated in experiments to see what the human body could withstand during rapid acceleration, rapid deceleration, other situations, 
if that body was properly protected. Uh, this is really just the first part of the story, though, because it's, it's, it tells us right in the title uh, that we've got more coming. So can you tell us a little bit more about the second half of the story? Absolutely. So after serving his country that way, after experiencing equality and respect and just basic dignity within that military environment while contributing to all this scientific and, and technological process, I mean, this was at the dawn of the space age, as soon as Alton crossed the state line into Texas on his drive home to Florida, he was back under the ugly old restrictions of Jim Crow. So even in his Air Force uniform, as a black person, he couldn't buy a meal, he couldn't use a restroom indoors, all the way back to Jacksonville, 1,700 miles away, all by himself. Along the way, Alton resolved to make a stand against segregation and for civil rights, and he did that by becoming a leader in the local NAACP Youth Council when he got back to Jacksonville. And those efforts toward a different sort of progress than what he had contributed toward in the Air Force, those efforts culminated in his participation in the Youth Council's lunch counter sit-ins in August 1960 that ended in a horrific primitive assault on them known as Axe Handle Saturday. One thing that I appreciate about this book, Chris, is that there are elements of it that I feel like many of us have heard about. Uh, the, the injustices during the civil rights era that um, people of color felt. Specifically, I've heard stories in general about people who had served in the military. I love that this gives it um, a specific name and a specific face to it. And I'm wondering, how did you find out about Alton's story? What was your inspiration to, to create this and put it in this uh, picture book format? Well, I first heard about Alton in November of 2016. I think I was at least subconsciously looking for, you know, a hero, someone to admire, something to find a little bit of, of hope in at that point in our history. Um, but I first heard um, his story on an episode of the StoryCorps podcast. And this was an episode that had originally um, aired uh, a couple of years earlier. So it was recorded back in 2014. I heard it in 2016. It was a conversation between Alton and his daughter, um, Tony Yates, who's a journalist for the ABC affiliate in New York City. And that conversation was solely about the experiences Alton had in the Air Force in New Mexico. So I was engaged just based on, on, on those experiments. I didn't know anything about those experiments, about the, you know, the, the things that Alton voluntarily was objected to. And I wanted to know more, like how voluntary was this? Who else participated? What was, you know... How did he feel about that beyond what was covered in that podcast? And then once I started learning more about him, I learned that there was this entirely separate part of it. Well, I shouldn't say separate because it is connected. Um, a different part of the story about what happened when he got out of the service and got back home to Jacksonville. So you're finding out kind of like these initial nuggets of the story and, and you're starting to dig in and I'm guessing that you're starting to see something kind of form like, Oh, this is, this would make a really great story for kids to read for many of the reasons that you've, you've shared with us here. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how primary sources came into the fold? What kind of things did you come across 
as you were continuing to t- take away those layers of, of Alton's story and dig deeper? Well, there were there was a wide variety of, of, of types of materials that I used, and I there, there's never room in a picture book for a full bibliography, so I always make a point of posting the bibliography on my site. I've done that for, for the for the past several books. In this case, there are there are several phases to a story, and there's there's a, a, a primary source or a type of primary source that came in handy for each of these. I begin the book by talking about Alton hearing stories from his his next door neighbor, a man named Mr. Jeffcoat. And Alton you know, told me he remembered stories that, that Mr. Jeffcoat had told him. He couldn't quite remember. So Alton was born in 1936. And Alton couldn't quite remember whether Mr. Jeffcoat had been talking about World War One or World War Two. So the first set of primary sources I found were um, these, these vital documents about Mr. Jeffcoat. I found out it was World War One. I. I was able to find the, the documents for when, now for his enlistment in the Army, for his passage to and from Europe, uh, the activities that his, his battalion was involved in. I found uh, Mr. Jeffcoat's home address, and so I was able to even um, provide uh, some art notes saying, when we're looking at Alton and Mr. Jeffcoat sitting on their porches, here's the, here's the, the order in which those houses should be based on where Alton was and where, and, and where Mr. Jeffcoat was. Um, then once we get into the, uh, his experiences in the military, there is video footage of Alton participating in some of these, some of these tests, even black and white footage from the 19, uh, 1950s. It's only a few seconds, but you know, of his involvement, but there's, you know, lots of other, uh, footage of other, um, you know, service members participating in these same experiments. So I was able to see Alton in motion for one of these types of experiments. There are also test reports um, that I was able to see um, from a, a research trip that my, my son and I made to, to New Mexico, to the um, Air Force Base out there, and also to the New Mexico Museum of Space History. And these test reports, one of them mentioned the, you know, the after effects, or the lots, lots of them mentioned the after effects of these tests that they're involved in, but it, it talked about the kind of the, the aches and pains that Alton experienced weeks after, which he, he had forgotten about. I had asked him in an interview about, um, about the after effects, and he, you know, I, I think we tend to forget things that maybe are, are less pleasant or, or aren't as important in the long run. So he had forgotten about these aches and pains that he'd reported at the time lasting for a while. Uh, but there was, in the, in the test reports, I was able to incorporate that in, into the story. When he made that road trip from New Mexico back to Florida in October 1959, the interstate system was still under development. So I got roadmaps from you no, know, 1959. So I was able to see as he drove from um, Holloman Air Force Base all the way across the south to Jacksonville, Florida. What were the roads that he was he was taking? Um, what towns was he going through? You never know when you're doing that research what parts of that you're going to use. There was a version of this manuscript I wrote where I talked more about the the, the towns that he went through. Um, but just being able to see how it was yet another way of seeing how different his experiences traveling uh, by himself as a black man through the South in 1959 were from how we would experience that same sort of road trip today. And Chris, I want to, Oh, let, let me ask. Cause I feel like I don't want to, 
kind of bypass this, and I feel like you're you keep hinting at this huge primary source. You said you talked to Alton himself, right? Yes, yes. Alton is is he's eighty five years old. I've talked with him many times. Uh, my wife Jennifer Ziegler and I got to to meet w- with Alton and his wife Gwen when we were in we were in Florida in summer of of twenty seventeen. So we got to go to their home and, and meet them. Um, I've texted with Alton. I've emailed with Alton. I've zoomed with Alton. Um, we've spoken on the phone many times. And so he's, he is a, he is a primary source as is, um, well, there was an oral history that was conducted with him, um, a a decade or two ago, as well as an oral history conducted with Rodney Hurst, who was at 16 years old, was the president of the NAACP youth council. Uh, so Alton was, I think, 23 at the time of the sit-ins and he was one of the oldest members of the, of the youth council, um, so the, the president, uh, Rodney Hurst, was 16. So there was a, a in, in addition to Rodney's own book, there was uh, an extensive oral history with him. Um, Rodney, his, his co-officer, or his and Alton's co-officer, uh, Marjorie Meeks Brown, um, I interviewed her as well. So being able to interview these people who, who were actively involved in the planning of the, of the sit-ins and participated in those, um, that all shaped... Um, you know, my ability to, to tell this story on top of the, the books and magazine articles and other things that have been have documented one part or another of this story along the years. Let me ask a little bit about that idea of impact, because certainly as I was reading this story for the first, the second, the third time, you certainly have moments where we're able to get into Alton's head a little bit. We understand why he did something or what, or an emotion that he had. And, and it speaks towards the access that you had to him mm-hmm. to be able to, to gather some of that. You also just shared some elements that you researched with the, the road trips and the roadmaps and, and how maybe that showed up in an earlier version, but, but not the, the final published version. But I would imagine it's still kind of, informs your feeling about what that road trip was. Can you speak a little bit to, either specific or in general, how did these primary sources, or any of these primary sources, impact your story that we see on the page today? When I visit schools, I tell students that I research deeply so I can explain things simply and accurately. the, the, the less you know about a subject, the more likely you are to, um, you know, to exaggerate some point of what you do know, to misconstru- misconstrue something that you know, um, to assume that the, what little information you have is, is accurate. I mean, in that first um, podcast episode I heard about Alton, as valuable as that conversation between Alton and his daughter was in the framing that was provided, you know, around that episode, there were, there was at least one significant factual error introduced. If I had just stopped at, at that level of research, I would have perpetuated that factual error in, in the book that I wrote. Um, there were, um, and there was a a similar, um, type of, of error 
occurred for many years in, in talking about the speed at which um, Alton was, the, the, the leader of this project at Holloman Air Force Base, um, Lieutenant Colonel John Paul Stapp, had ridden a, a rocket-powered sled that went from zero to 639 miles per hour in five seconds and then stopped in, in like less than a second and a half. Um, the, the rate of speed was reported wrong for many years. It was reported as a measly 632 miles per hour instead of 639, but uh, you know, there was a biographer of, of Stapp who, who did the math from the original reports and said, no, this comes out to 639 miles per hour. Um, so the, it, it keeps me from, hopefully it, it keeps me from making mistakes or at least minimizes the mistakes, reduces the mistakes that, that, that I, I make. I try not to make any mistakes, but, and the more I do my research, the, the more I can avoid that. Um, you know, in the case of, of Alton, what, what would motivate him to want to join the Air Force, want to join the military, even after seeing the way that, that people in his community were not treated with the dignity and respect that they had earned by, by serving their country. You know, that was, that was something that I, you know, having not served in, in the military myself, having not, you know, I'm a white guy in, in the, 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 the late, late 20th and now 21st centuries, um, I could not relate to firsthand to Alton being in, in that environment, making the choice that he did. So I needed to understand from him, well, what were the reasons why you would want to join the military, even after seeing how it worked out? And by, through, the pro, through the primary source of Alton, I was able to get an understanding of that. It was um, the inspiration from having Lieutenant Colonel Chappie James, or he, he was eventually a Lieutenant Colonel, I guess he, he was a major at the time he visited Alton's junior high, hearing this impressive um, black um, Air Force officer speak at his school that inspired him by the fact that um, you know the, Air, the military could offer more than Jacksonville had to offer, uh, especially as the Air Force was being desegregated. That inspired him. And Alton's own limited uh, family circumstances. His mother had died. His family um, they couldn't afford to send their, all their kids to college. And so that combination of factors I could have guessed that maybe one of those if I didn't do if I didn't thoroughly research, but only by thoroughly researching, talking with Alton, understanding the the situation that he was in, was I able to to get a full picture of what motivated him to join the Air Force and set him off on this journey that that you know put him back in in Jacksonville at the time of the Civil Rights Movement. There's two things that you've said, Chris, that really strike me as far as a reason to just continue digging deep into these primary sources. One of them is this, and I think it's a big overarching idea, and I've, I've, I've heard this from, from other authors, and that is just this desire to understand more fully what, what the moment was, who the person was, uh, what the motivation was, that continuing that research and, and utilizing primary sources in the research can really help that process. The other thing you said, and I, and I appreciate it so much, and I, and I just want to highlight it because I think it's, it's a wonderful example of what so many nonfiction authors are, for children are working to do in their published work, and that is to get every detail right. When you talk about just the, the slight um, difference in the speed from 632 to 639 and wanting to, in a sense, 
put a marker in the sand for other people who are coming in and reading work and saying, no, this is the correct information, even though I know there's some misinformation out there. There's a due diligence that happens that behind the scenes that I think is so rigorous and, and in some ways so complex that uh, I just wanted to highlight it because I don't think that when you read the page, it's hard to understand what you're doing to get ready to write those words. And so I, I want to put those two things out there. Well, I appreciate that. And I've, I've seen, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of work to get the facts right. And, but I also see how easy it is to, to get the facts wrong, even just in some of what I've seen written about moving forward by, by well-meaning people who appreciate the book. I've seen Alton described as a pilot. He wasn't a pilot. Um, I've seen him described as having uh, been, you know, participated in experiments for NASA. He was not involved with NASA. NASA was created during the time that Alton was at the Air Force, and, and the experiments that they were doing at Holloman Air Force Base were also geared toward you know, getting Americans ready for space travel. But it, that was separate. And so it's, you, you can see how easy it is to make those assumptions. And, but knowing how easy it is to make those assumptions, you know you, you need to look really carefully to, to, at, at the underlying information, go back as close as possible to the primary sources. When I'm researching a new book, and I, um, I use a, a book written for, uh, for adults as, as, one of my, as one of my entry points, I find the bibliography and the source notes in those books so valuable um, to help me figure out, okay, well, where should I go beyond this book to get my information? I try to do the same thing to some extent with my, my picture books and by providing that list of you know, 104 sources that I, I used for, for, for moving forward so that somebody who comes along after me could, you know, could you know, recreate my research to some extent and build on it the way I've been able to build on the work done by, by other nonfiction authors. I've heard other authors mention that same process and I think it's such a wonderful tip for our older students, I'm thinking middle school, high school, and even sometimes maybe in a structured way, upper elementary, like those things can happen for our student researchers as well. Those are things that they can do in, and it may look a little bit different. It may not be as deep or as rigorous as a dive, but to get into that idea of uh, following that, that breadcrumb trail to get, as you mentioned, kind of as close to or to the primary source, I think can be a real valuable thing that comes away in addition to a wonderful story. I want to return, if I could, to, to just the idea of the primary source here. And I'm wondering if there was a primary source along the way in those 100 plus, well, those are 100 plus resources, not all primary sources, let me correct myself. Right. But in all of those primary sources that you came across, was there uh, something that was unexpected, something that changed your thinking about the story for you as a, as a researcher and as a writer? There was. There were a couple of, of sources that I list in the bibliography that might seem surprising to anyone who reads the book and reads the bibliography and wonders, well, what's, what's up with these two sources? So the, the place where the, the assault of Axe Handle Saturday took place, kind of the, the center point of that was, was uh, what was then known as, as Hemming Park in, in Jacksonville. Uh, and so the Axe Handle Saturday occurred in late August of 1960. It was a presidential election year. 
in, I believe it was the middle of October 1960, less than two months after this vicious assault on these young civil rights protesters. On the same day, John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon gave speeches in Hemming Park, and neither one of them so much as mentioned or alluded to the conflict that had occurred, had occurred in that spot less than two months before. And it's kind of impossible for, I think, for us to imagine today that you would have a, you know, the, the, the front runners to the, for the two major political parties give a speech in that place, given the context of what had happened there before, and had there not be some mention of what had occurred there. Um, the way that, that that subject is handled might have varied widely. But the fact that it was not brought up at all was so telling to me about the, um, the, the lack of attention, the lack of coverage that so much of these essential um, fights for civil rights received at the time. There was no coverage of, you know, of the, of the sit-ins, of the protests, of the, of the assault in, the, in the, the Jacksonville newspaper. That's a fact that they apologized for just a couple of years ago. The Jacksonville new, new, uh, newspaper, um, I believe that's the, the Times Union, they issued an apology just a couple of years ago for their journalistic failures in 1960 and, 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 the, and their, their lack of coverage of what was truly happening. And the, the fact that, that neither Kennedy nor Nixon said anything about it, that was informative, even though that does not appear in the text of the book. It, it, it was helpful for me to see that after the end of Axe Handle Saturday, it's not like all of a sudden downtown Jacksonville was integrated, progress occurred right then. There's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a time jump after Axe Handle Saturday in the book where I talk about the progress that happens and how long that progress can it can take to happen. Yeah, I think that that comes across. Uh, I've got to just, speaking of Axe Handle Saturday, it was, first of all, something I had never heard of before. It was, a, it was an instance that was is completely new to me. And, and honestly, my knowledge of it right now doesn't go any further than your book, but it's an opportunity to, to know more. Um, I, I have to just give a, a shout out to the illustrator, Steffi Walthall, um, the very... I guess the last spread right before that jump into the future, Chris, um, which is, is a little bit abstract, mm -hmm. but also so powerful. I just, when I turned that page um, to show some of the effects, I, it was I'd like my, I just kind of gasped. Yeah. And, and it, was, it was just a, a really powerful moment, illustratively, along with the text. Um, and then you're right, you've got this, this amazing jump that happens uh, that that gives us a perspective from today, which I think can be helpful for young readers too. Um, just as a small trivia nugget for the next time Chris Barton shows up on a trivia night or a Jeopardy question, uh, is this officially the uh, second book of yours that you show up in illustratively? It is. Um, I, I don't see this being a trend, but yes, okay. I am. I'm illustrated throughout my my previous book, How to Make a Book About My Dog, because it is about my own experiences in, in making books. And when I saw the sketches 
for moving forward where I'm also depicted because I, I'm shown having, having dinner with Alton and Gwen in their home, you know, hearing his stories. When I saw that sketch, I, I told the, my editor for, for moving forward, I said, you know, just, just so you know, I'm already depicted in this other book. And now I'm not saying this is this is good or this is bad that it would I'm, I'm appearing this. I just want you to know that this is this is this has happened. So um, yeah, it's a, it's an odd coincidence. Um, it is not a it is not a, a it's not written into my into my my book contracts that I must be depicted in the illustrations. Um, I don't think I'm going to appear. In the illustrations of my next book, which is a nonfiction book about glitter, but maybe I'll be shown eating, you know, glitter cupcakes and, and glitter pan, glitter syrup covered pancakes, which was also an important part of the research process. It Primary sounds... sources have never been so tasty. Yes, I I I, I want to just also just a, a quick end mention because I I know I've mentioned this in in earlier episodes of the podcast, but I think it's so valuable a valuable tool when we're asking our students just to think about this idea of where did the information come from um, and this idea of, of primary sources being part of that information. As you mentioned, your, as I mentioned, you mentioned yourself being depicted, it really is a visual evidence of, of Yates being this primary source that you spoke with, with him. Mm -hmm. I, I think the other piece that, the other hint that comes along is the magazine depictions and it very clearly says ebony magazine mm -hmm. so we we get another hint visually and i love when illustrators do this about where some of this information is coming from i think it's uh, a real um treat for for kids to be able to pick those things out and and that that may 1959 issue of ebony um gwen before she was before she was gwen yates um Gwen picked up that copy of, of Ebony because Sidney Poitier was on the cover. Um, I doubt that she looked at the, at the headline in the upper right corner of the cover where it says GI risks death 65 times for science and had any inkling that that was her, her sweet Alton um, being described. But yes, Alton was, was, a, was a subject of this uh, heavily photographed um, feature in, in Ebony in, in 1959. And I, th I think it was, you know, to, to some extent, it was a, it was a, a, a PR piece um, for, the, for the military, but it, it shows Alton, you know, great, fo great photographs of Alton's actual participation in, the, in these experiments. And so I was so glad to have, not only to have th those photographs, um, no, there were there were not these photographs I think available for you know for everybody who participated in these experiments as Alton did. He was singled out as someone who would be a good person to to be featured. But I love the fact that that's how Gwen found out about that. So when you see those hands holding that magazine, you know those 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 hands belong to belong to Gwen Yates. I love that. I and I love all those kind of deep cuts that that. Maybe only you and Steffi know, but but now we all get a chance to know a little bit more about because of this. Chris, I, I really always love talking to you about your books, about primary sources and the role that they play. Maybe we'll get back together and talk about uh, glitter when it when it comes out. 
I've got to thank you so much for spending some time with us today on the Primary Source Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me, Tom. No, it doesn't take much arm twisting to get me to talk about research and nonfiction and primary sources. So I'm, I'm glad to do this. Love it. Thank you.